Hello and welcome. I'm really amazed that so many people came out in this weather. I mean, I almost didn't come out in this weather. <laughs> um, um, so thank you very much for, uh, for turning up. What I want to talk about today is one aspect of military sort of socialization into violence. And I want to start with a poem. Actually, it was published in 1975 by Dennis Coates. Um, he um, was inspired, his book of poetry was inspired by the time he spent at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy. One poem entitled Summer Training seeks to convey the tough drills and exercises that each cadet has to go through, has to endure in order to graduate. When he comes here, the poem starts, he is a child. This can only change once he has dreamed his own destruction and positioned himself at the edge of a howling vortex which postpones even the night. Although undertaking through undertaking a series of ordeals, Coates is suggesting that boys symbolically die during the initiation process and warrior men are therefore born. Whether at West Point, New York, the Marine Corps recruiting depots, Paris Island, or San Diego, or any number of boot camps located around the U.S., the rigors of military training have been immortalized in innumerable memoirs, novels, and movies, most famously or most notoriously, perhaps, in Stanley Kubrick's film Full Metal Jacket. In this talk, what I want to do is I want to reflect on some of the reasons for the durability and symbolic power of hazing rituals. As I hope to be able to show you, military hazing has generally been justified according to three overlapping mean ways. First, that it meets individual psychological needs. Second, that it's crucial in forging powerful group ties. And third, that it's a, if you like, rite of passage into manhood. Now, I'm going to argue that all those three justifications do have some merit. But I also want to say that these psychological explanations have, in fact, less value or less force than a fourth justification, and that is institutional dynamics. In other words, what has been created through hazing is much more than simply an individual warrior or even a cohesive fighting force. More importantly, the warring institution itself is reproduced through instrumental violence against its own members. The appeal to the separate culture of military institutions allow hazing to be justified as a morally relative practice. And this, I'll be arguing, is why it's proved impossible to dislodge. But first, what are we talking about here? The concept of hazing is often traced back to ancient Greece, where soldiers were required to demonstrate their strength and their loyalty by enduring certain ordeals. However, if you actually look at it, the verb to haze was actually first used in the 15th century, where it was used in the navy in particular, but also the army, to refer to scolding, upbraiding, frightening, and punishing personnel. 
In modern times, the term or practices that are called hazing do not only, of course, take place in the military, fraternities, colleges, oil drilling rigs and other relatively closed communities are just some of the places where hazing is um, where hazing actually thrives. There is no uncontested definition of what we actually mean when we say hazing, since the term actually changes very dramatically depending on exactly who is speaking. Hank Neuer, um, probably the most influential person who works in this field, he's the editor of The Hazing Reader, came out in 2014, observes that hazing can actually include anything from horseplay to vicious assaults. It includes a good-natured punch and hard boot cramp activities. Many definitions, though, suggest that unlike forms of bullying, Hazing has a strong initiation component, in addition to causing potential or actual harm to victims. A typical definition, in other words, claims that hazing involves any activity expected of someone joining a group or to maintain full status in a group that humiliates, degrades or risks emotional and or physical harm. Excuse me. So, what are some of the practices involved in hazing? Victims are, for example, subjected to sleep deprivation, required to perform extreme exercises. They are forced to eat or drink disgusting fluids and foods. Humiliation is routine. Victims are made to feel worthless, forced to wear women's clothes, ordered to sing stupid ditties or play with dolls. Many of these rituals are highly sexual, including public masturbation and imitating or performing fellatio. Euphemisms attempt to obscure the cruelty of many hazing activities. For example, sweat parties, naked men confined in steam-filled shower rooms, blanket parties, they are wrapped in blankets and beaten. Bloody Sunday or breakout rituals involve victims running the gauntlet of senior upclassmen who hit them. Kissing the royal baby. I don't know if you know what that is. That is kissing a superior's stomach that's been thickly plastered with lard. Now this is of course relatively benign when compared to greasings. Naked man smeared in machine grease and penetrated with a plastic tube. During blood-winging ceremonies, which occur after paratroopers have completed a certain number of jumps, in these, um, these ceremonies, gold-wing pins are brutally punched into the skin and tissues of a um, trooper's chest. The consequences for victims are not trivial. Hazing is routinely linked to suicide, psychiatric breakdown and serious injuries. Now, this formidable status and longevity of hazing practices, I think, can only be understood by recognising hazing as a form of meaningful violence, form of meaningful violence for perpetrators as well as for many, although not all by any means, victims. Now, there are lots of interpretations of this that we've seen in the past. I mean, one interpretation draws on sort of ideas from psychoanalysis. 
saying um, a pioneer um, group psychotherapist, Hugh uh, Mullen, as he explained in 1948, hazing relationships reestablish a Oedipal situation in which the upper-class men take up a position of father surrogates who are responsible for punishing and threatening junior men who are reduced to the position of children, placating their father and becoming utterly dependent on them for security gains. This dynamic, he argues, and people like him argue, creates formidable links between the pr protagonists, ensuring that, in his words, the academy graduate class can never break with regular service authority. Now, with the Vietnam War and increased anxieties about the militarization of American society, these sort of psychoanalytical approaches were actually became very, very important and were actually used to explain how atrocities such as those at My Lai were able to take place. However, in reality, the psychoanalytical explanations have never had as much force as the much more commonplace sociological explanations for hazing. And basically, the sociological explanations take two forms. The first emphasizes the way hazing creates a sense of belonging for individual members while the second takes this one step further, arguing that only by forging a strong, stable, shared identity can the group act cohesively in combat. In both cases, it is taken for granted that pain and distress are necessary in constructing martial masculinities. In the words of a psychiatrist who worked at West Point between 1970 and 1972, Although beast barracks is usually a distressing time for the young recruit, if he survives the ordeal, he will emerge with a high sense of self-esteem and a feeling of being accepted by a group of men for whom, whose approval he has sacrificed his civilian life. Most of all, he went on, it means that he has forged powerful personal loyalties and group solidarity. Slightly broader um, justification refers not to the function of hazing and engendering an individual's sense of belonging, but rather for the cohesiveness and combat effectiveness of the combat group as a whole. Implicit in this justification is the assumption that warring does not come naturally to men. Men, in other words, must be socialized into the warrior caste. As Kendall Banning rhetorically asked, must not the heat be applied to the wax somehow before it will pour into the mold? He was uh, writing in 1937. Inflicting pain was said to be actually an effective way to eliminate in the words of another person, the overweening pride of many newly appointed cadets. It would eliminate the weak and the unmotivated. It would dampen down the cockiness of young men. It was claimed that hazing was especially necessary in modern times when the military was faced with smart men who came to the academy with fresh and often undigested academic or military honours. 
This suspicion of scholastic achievements, in fact, pervades this entire literature, whatever period you want to look at. Hazing was essential, it went, to building warriors, not scholars. Furthermore, this process was often presented as having a pseudo-mystical dimension. As one commentator put it in 1896, recruits had to be valorously socialised into the sacred privileges of the caste. Indeed, according to the commanding officer of the weapons company, 5th Marines, some form of hazing was necessary because it was as much a combat multiplier as tanks. This was a message communicated time and again. Hazing and other types of rough, tough training were necessary to establish immediate, instant obedience. There was a point to pain and humiliation, insisted Tom Hollard. In the 1960s, he had suffered extreme hazing and had, of course, hated it. But that did not lead him to repudiate the practice, quite the opposite. In his words, all that hazing steeled me, taught me how to react and function in Vietnam. He vowed that although it was a very intense part of my training, it taught me that I could survive. For those who argued that the physical and psychological costs were too great, he replied, rank-and-file soldiers almost to a person usually say, better one man die, even at the hands of his fellow service members, than he compromise the entire unit's safety. Crucially, Commentators who focused on this kind of group dynamic aspect emphasized their belief that painful and humiliating rituals were a necessary part of the rite of passage from boyhood to martial manhood. If masculine traits were to be inculcated, feminine, instant, inst feminine influences have to be excised. Hazing transforms boys who had been, quote, this is banning, in 1936, transforms boys who had been spoilt by indulgent home folk into men. A defense of hazing at the Citadel uh, Military uh, College in South Carolina claimed that it was aimed at identifying and expelling any candidate who was likely to go blubbering to his mother. Indeed, it went on, it was a point of pride to see who can chase out the most knobs. Now, degrading our rituals, uh, degrading these recruits um, by calling them weak tarts, power puffs, and other female insults was also a way of forcing them into adopting a particular kind of masculinity. As leading commentator of this um, uh, field, uh, George Gilder reported in 1973, he said, from the moment one arrives the drill instructors begin a torrent of misogynistic and anti-individualistic abuse. The good things are manly, collective. The despicable are feminine and individual. Virtually every sentence, every description, every lesson embodies this sexual duality. And the female anatomy provides a rich field of metaphor for every degradation. When you want to create male killers, that's what you do. You kill the woman in them. Like most other proponents of hazing, Gilder contributes to the misogynist abuse that he claims to be simply describing. 
Nevertheless, these functionalist, and I think they are functionalist um, justifications, those that focus on the inculcation of individual traits, the forging of group dynamics, rites of passage, I think still they are partly true, but I think they are also problematic. Crucially, as in Gilder's analysis, they blur the distinction between military training and hazing. Indeed, they imply there is no distinction. In his classic history of West Point, written in 1937, Kendall Banning portrayed these practices as part of a continuum. It was impossible, he said, to point to any one place in which, at which right turned into wrong. As he asked, if a new cadet can execute, present arms with a rifle for 50 times without becoming tired, and two or three hundred times before becoming exhausted, at just what point between these two figures does training cease and hazing begin? This question, in other words, of the relative nature of violence was echoed throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. As a leading American expert on hazing noted as late as 2004, one recruit's hazing is another recruit's shaping up exercise. There were also numerous problems with the adoption of this anthropological idea about hazing as kind of a rite of passage. Proponents speak about hazing as simply a rite of passage that is culturally free or culture free. They drew analogies between hazing in contemporary American militaries with practices in other cultures wrongly assuming a universal set of contexts, norms, and psychological profiles. This enables them to evade awkward questions about the levels of violence involved in a military context. Another problem with this analogy is that the concept of a rite of passage was developed out of anthropological research into cultures in which young men make a transition to adulthood through undergoing these arduous ordeals. Now, the dissimilarities between these ordeals and the ones expected of men in elite military units becomes clear, I think, when it is noted that in the former context, practically all Practically all men or young men achieve or are expected to achieve the status of manhood. And there are often subtle ways of ensuring that there is, in fact, a very, very high, if not 100%, success rate. This is very different for what we see in hazing rituals in the military and indeed in fraternities, in which a sizable proportion fail. Indeed, a high failure rate is built in to military hazing. It is simply not the case that hazing creates a sense of potential equality between the men or that the principle of rotating roles between domination and submission demonstrates the essential equality and therefore unity within the homosocial group, both notions that are widely par parroted in the pro-hazing literature. It is also, I want to suggest, disingenuous to claim, as one sociologist did in 1955, that one is not being hazed because the upperclassman is a sadist and because one is at his time, at the time, in a junior status. 
Those who haze do not pretend to be superior to those who are being hazed. The swab knows that he will have his turn. He will have his turn at hazing others. But in fact, all participants don't get to act both parts, only some do. Equality, in other words, is wholly illusionary, since not everyone who attempts to join the group are hazed equally. Hazers habitually do assume that they are superior to their victims, since certain types of people are excluded from the start, irrespective, irrespective of whether they currently or potentially possess the requisite traits of fitness, courage and solidarity. The excluded groups, and we can talk about this in questions, have changed dramatically over time at different times, different places. African Americans, Chinese, Jews and other minorities have been subjected to much more violent forms of hazing than, for example, white middle class men. The required characteristic for hazing is also masculinity. As we shall see shortly, this became clear during the sexual abuse scandal in Tailhook in September 1991. It is even more convincing, I think, to argue that hazing is as much about the reproduction of the institution as it is about individual psychology or group dynamics. Indeed, I'll be arguing this is exactly why it has proved so difficult to eradicate. It is not so much the individual warrior and his unit that is being reproduced through hazing, but a particular kind of warrior institution. The most convincing way, I think, to explain why hazing has persisted and why few victims reported, um, by the way, on average, um, cadets experience hazing more than twice a month. But the, most, the, the way to explain this, I think, is to understand that hazing practices have become institutionalized. Instructors as well as cadets are unclear about the difference between hazing and legitimate military training. In a closed environment in which contact with the outside world is strictly limited, loyalty is highly valorized. Breaking the code of silence could have formidable consequences, including rejection by one's peers and an escalation of the violence. Furthermore, time and again, members defended hazing as necessary to protect the institution of a separate warrior culture, which helps explain the covert acceptance of such practices. And you know, if you're going through this literature, you time and again, you get this kind of very resigned tone um, uh, can be heard as military and civilian observers simply note that, well, abolition has failed. Just to give you one example, uh, Banning, the author of West Point Today, published in the late 30s, blandly noted that Hazing was abolished at West Point some years ago. Well, practically abolished at any rate. Skip forward 55 years and the author of an article on the Citadel also observed that hazing was officially at least grounds for immediate expulsion, not to mention a misdemeanor according to the South Carolina law, but it still flourishes. Some senior trainers actually though go a lot further 
than these two people, gleefully boasting about how rules against inflicting cruel and humiliating practices and training could be circumvented. In a 1998, 1998 article entitled Hazing, an officer assigned to the infantry training battalion admitted that the order against hazing meant that drill instructors hourly, daily, and weekly jeopardize their careers by doing what they think is necessary to instill discipline in their privates. They had become, he went on, they had become experts in developing hilarious and ingenious techniques to discipline offenders, including toe-tappers that create calf burns and cramps and yet remain undetected to the casual observer. The drill instructor who used such techniques was not risking his career out of some hidden thrill for causing pain. Rather, he was willing to risk everything he has achieved to accomplish what he sees is the best thing for the individual recruit and for the Marine Corps. In an awkward attempt to be politically correct, this officer goes on and he mixes up his pronouns. Initially using the male pronoun to refer to drill instructors, um, he concludes that, considering that he, the drill instructor, considering that he is the man or woman on the scene with the experience necessary to form an opinion on what is needed, it would seem that he or she is in the best position to determine what is necessary to accomplish the task. Hazing administered a sharp shock that prevented officers from having to either dismiss the cadet from the services altogether or consign him or her to a desk job. Hazing was, in other words, presented as nothing more than a convenient way of ensuring the institution did not disintegrate, either by creating too many desk job positions or by excluding men who would otherwise or who could otherwise be moulded into effective warriors. As another author sneered, um, again in the Marine Corps Gazette, the idea that the Corps needed to ensure little Johnny's rights aren't violated was ridiculous. Should, he went on, an errant child knowingly disobeying instructions be spanked or have its head cut off? It was common sense that spanking or its equivalent hazing was the solution. Yet, the Marine Corps abolished spanking and left us only with the career-ending head-chopping-off office hours or court-martial. The more elite the unit, the more loudly hazing is defended. Hazing was seen to safeguard the warrior or combat-ready character of elite military units, distinguishing themselves from the technocratic aspects of other branches of the military. With the professionalization of the armed forces and the increased role played by civilian contractors within the forces, um, Iraq, 19, um, 2015, as many civilian contractors as um, American troops on the, in the field. Um, so with the increased role of these civilian contractors, elite combat units were desperate to ensure that they were not interchangeable with these civilians. This belief that elite corpsmen belonged to a culture set apart meant that many victims too did not take hazing to be morally wrong. 
Indeed, the very senselessness, the very senselessness of the rituals was part of what enabled it, them to be construed as meaningful. The separateness of military culture was being attacked, they believed, not only by the incursion of political correctness and civilian values, but it was also threatened by feminism. Sociologists like Lion Tiger claimed that the public furore over hazing was due to feminization. This view was particularly noisome during the discussions over the tail hook scandal, um, whereby um, 19, sorry, the 35th annual tail hook symposium in Las Vegas, September 1991. It's a two-day briefing of U.S. Naval, Navy and Marine Corps aviation in Operation Desert Storm, at which 83 service women. 83 service women and seven uh, service men alleged sexual assault and harassment. Amongst other humiliations, they had been forced to walk down a corridor lined with men who groped them. Now, in the subsequent public furore, the distinction between hazing and sexual abuse was blurred. For instance, writing in the Marine Corps Gazette, November 1992, Leading American cultural commentator William Lind confessed to being puzzled by the public reaction to um, the abuse. After all, he wrote, no one was raped at Tailhook. From, from what was in the newspapers, it didn't sound much different from a Dartmouth fraternity on a Friday or Saturday night. Unless the women officers who were protesting their treatment so loudly went directly to flight school from a convent, they surely had some idea what to expect. Lynn claimed that the public condemnation of the abuses at Tailhook were a classic example of what he calls fourth generation warfare, conducted by feminists against the American officer corps. Feminists, he wrote, are well on their way to their operational goal, the feminization of the armed forces. If women in the military wanted to be treated as equals, then they had to accept the backslapping, practical joking, locker room atmosphere that usually prevails when men do dangerous jobs like flying combat aircraft. In an article entitled A Cultural Dilemma 2000, William Nemeth took up this theme. Nemeth was an armory officer serving with the 4th Tank Battalion, um, um, and for him, political correctness was having a negative effect on our culture. His main target was the crucible, introduced in 1996, in an attempt to find a non-abusive way of training Marines in endurance and teamwork. Nemeth believed that the cost in implementing it has been too high. He told readers of the Marine Corps Gazette that, although many of our traditions may be politically or socially unpalatable, they serve a valid purpose of reinforcing the warrior culture and uh, building unit cohesion. Junior officers were leaving the Marine Corps, the Marines, because they were disappointed that our senior leadership does not stand up to the encroaching political correctness. 
and we're failing to protect our unique but not necessarily politically palatable culture. The concerns of commentators like Lind and Nemeth were widely shared. What they failed, I think, to acknowledge, however, was that prohibiting hazing probably increased its appeal. As I've already argued, recruits and members of an elite military armed units prided themselves on being set apart from civilian mores and sensitivities. Pain and humiliating rights were essential to the mystique of joining this exclusive club. Marines were intensely proud that the Marine Corps didn't join you nor promise you a rose garden. This set-apartness were powerful disincentives to complaining about what went on inside the barracks and parade grounds. Marine Corps publications routinely defended officers and instructors who were punished for hazing. I mean, I can give you dozen, lots and lots of examples here, dozens of examples. I'm just going to give you one, and this is um, six young men drowned at the Ribbon Creek hazing tragedy in 1956. As late as 1975, Leatherneck published a letter written by a Marine to his father, in which he noted that the instructor who had led the punishment march was only wrong for taking men into water of unknown depth. He did not err in taking them into water on a Sunday night. War respects neither sleep nor holy days, and his job was to be ready for his men. He would, be, he would have undoubtedly preferred to retire early and breakfast refreshed with his wife and children. Making that march was for him a sacrifice of personal comfort to the job and trust of making soldiers. As another Marine admitted, Marines were inordinately proud of how much pain they had endured in boot camp and would, this is a book um, uh, uh, writing 2014, and would swap stories of abuse they suffered with the idea that he who had suffered most received the best training, more punishment, better molding. Readers of Leatherneck were expected to respond to such accounts with nostalgic longing for the good old days when Marines were properly hazed. Corpsmen accepted the necessity of pain. Now, an element of consent um, ruled out complaining about it. In part, this consent element um, was there because cadets were self-selecting. From the moment they arrived in camp, they possessed an intense desire to belong. One quarter of cadets were from families with long traditions of military service. No one wanted to be one of the men who failed to make the grade. Many felt that they had to show their fathers the stuff that is in me, as one said. A shared belief in the importance of pain and humiliation helps explain why recruits aligned themselves with officers in resisting the softening of boot camp. For example, in the 1970s, then there were some attempts at the time to eliminate the harsher forms of training, harsher forms of hazing, sorry. Some cadets were dismayed. As one psychiatrist working at West Point observed, new um, 
new cadets and upperclassmen felt that an easier beast barracks diminished their own achievements. At the end of every summer, a number of the new cadets complained that the ordeal had not been difficult enough. Some of this was, of course, bragging, but these cadets also felt genuinely disappointed, as if they had not been tested as rigorously as their predecessors. Many felt that the summer just wasn't tough enough, that too many pussies got through. Pain maketh the man. But then we've got a change happening. Crisis in the 1990s. Despite high levels of consent, shared values about the need for pain and humiliation in shaping an elite warrior caste, in the 1990s, the military was subjected to a particularly vocal critique of hazing. This, by the way, was not at all unique to the military. Hazing scandals in college fraternities were also causing public outcry. State officials finally decided that they had to legislate against these practices. The result, I think, can be seen by just one statistic. 1990, 25 states had enacted statutes outlawing hazing. Within a decade, all states except seven had adopted anti-hazing statutes. In the military context, the need to take seriously the groundswell, groundswell against hazing was driven primarily by plummeting recruiting, recruitment. High-profile hazing scandals had generated unprecedented and sustained negative press um, coverage. As Captain Andrew Wilcox admitted, our, ye our yearly recruiting mission, already difficult, could become impossible if potential recruits believe that they will be abused and hazed. Between 1980 1990. and 1991, 23% of male recruits and 33% of female recruits were leaving West Point within their first two years. The need to retain what was increasingly highly skilled personnel had become desperate. If there was to be a change, the military argued, it had to come from within. Offices where officers could ensure that the separate but different culture would be preserved. The commanding officer of Weapons Company, 5th Marine, set out the dominant approach. He argued that since hazing was absolutely necessary, the point should not be to legislate this need away, but to feed it in a positive way. He proposed doing this by taking rituals out of the background, by institutionalizing, supervising, and sanctioning each one. Self-regulation, monitoring of hazing practices were the solution to the crisis. On 18th of June 1997, General Charles Kulak, commander of the Marine Corps, tackled the problem directly when he issued Order 1700.28. The order defined hazing as any conduct whereby one military member, regardless of service or rank, causes another military member, regardless of service and rank, to suffer or to be exposed to an activity which is cruel, abusive, humiliating or oppressive. It listed examples of hazing, physically striking another person, piercing skin, verbally berating, um, engaging in illegal, harmful, demeaning or dangerous acts. However, if you look at this act, the act also explicitly legitimates certain military practices that opponents of hazing 
or argued should be banned. According to the order, hazing did not include the following. Anything, anything that took place during mission or operation activities, the requisite training to prepare for such missions or, op or operations, administratively, administrative Corrective measures, extra military instruction as defined in the reference, command authorised physical training, authorised incentive training permitted at the Marine Corps recruit depots and other similar activities. In other words, hazing was regulated rather than forbidden within the cult context of Marine Corps culture. Nevertheless, still, this didn't go far enough. The order dismayed many Marines. Within nine months, Geoffrey Eby of the Marines Infantry Training Battalion was warning that the order was proving detrimental to the establishment of good order and discipline. Eby maintained that this meant that NCOs could no longer enforce the finer points of day-to-day -day life. In the past, Eby continued, when a Marine dropped his rifle, tradition always dictated that the Marine follow the weapon down for push-ups. Indeed, in most units, a command to do these push-ups wasn't even required. It was common practice. Kulak's order had suddenly eradicated this long-standing tradition, so that today, when the sound of a weapon is heard bounding off the deck, NCOs pretend to be deaf. This weakened their position and, crucially, was a blow to morale. He bitterly noted that officers were forced to show leadership by resorting to the performance evaluation and counselling sessions utilised by civilian corporations. Although he claimed that he did not want to insult civilian employees working for the Department of Defence, he nevertheless insisted that it would destroy the cause if the Marines were judged by civilian standards. As a result, E.B. complained, drill instructors were currently faced with the softest, pampered, yet reportedly more intelligent, specimen ever to have stood on yellow footprints. One of the strongest contributions to this debate was made by the armour officer and instructor, and instructor mentioned earlier, William Nemeth. Not long ago, he observed, a com commandant would welcome newly commissioned second lieutenants into the Marine Corps with a handshake and a punch on the arm or shoulder. Now, he complained, punches and blood-winging, the um, <laughs> banging in the thing into your chest, were regarded as hazing. He reminded, reading, re he reminded readers of the Marine Corps Gazette that these essential morale-boosting events had gone on for years, and their disappearance to placate those who advocate a politically correct, kinder and gentler military is not only unfortunate, but frightening. Boys will be boys. We work hard. We play hard. As um, Angel Bright of the Marine Corps also argued, a kinder, gentle, gentler corps me meant that new Marines were increasingly belligerent and cocky. It could burn our beloved corps to its very foundations. 2010. To conclude, as a form of institutional violence, hazing, of course, continues to the present. This was admitted in the March 2014 issue of the Marine Corps Gazette when armoured reconnaissance officer Evan Musling attacked the persistent penetration of the military sphere by the media and civilian oversight, which he said had led to a precipitous decline 
in the range of punishments available to military leaders of all levels. He noted that it was ironic that these limits effectively enshrined hazing as the method of last resort for correcting disciplinary problems because there were simply too few useful legal options for correcting bad character. Bureaucratic impediments to punishments mean that we generally impose disciplinary force later rather than sooner and at a scale that is neither appropriate nor effective for solving the problems we face. Ethan Brooks came to a similar conclusion in his 2014 article entitled Hazing versus Challenging. He said that he had been prompted to write the article after attending an equal opportunities training earlier that year. The instructor had asked a corporal to stand up and define hazing. When the corporal began to read the official Marine Corps definition, the instructor stopped him and told him to give your own definition. Hazing, said the corporal, is tradition. Brooks reported that the room erupted in murmurs, probably in equal parts. You can't say that, and hear, hear. Brooks took this as evidence that Marines aren't buying the Marine Corps policy on hazing. Of course, many Marines are happy to see the old ways go, but every year during the Equal Opportunities classes, you can sense that many of them are thinking, we all know this is gay, but hey, it's the new Marine Corps and there's not nothing we can do about it. The solution then was to make training significantly more difficult. In the words of one, when young men or women join the Marine Corps, they expect to be pushed to their breaking point. We owe this to them. Masculine militarist nationalism trumped civilian discourses of human rights. This was not simply a Marine Corps problem. As we've seen within the Army, Navy and Air Forces as well, hazing was posited as a series of ennobling and redeeming rituals that created a special link between the Corps' men and women and those elite institutions. Um, what this was regarded as particularly necessary, though, in units expecting to see um, active military service. Hazing was believed to buttress the warrior character of the institution to prevent that culture from being tainted by civilian mores. It needed to be preserved from anything soft and feminine. Although the term hazing was increasingly reviled, bullying and other painful and humiliating practices continue to be regarded by corpsmen as important to maintain our unique characteristic edge necessary in the creation of effective frontline competence in war. As Dennis Coates said at the beginning of this talk, a man, he believed, can only become a warrior after having dreamed his own destruction and positioning himself at the edge of a howling vortex which postpones even the night. Through undertaking a series of ordeals, boys symbolically die, initiating the process with which, by which warrior men are born and the military institution forged and strengthened. Thank you. <laughs>